Now, when we come to chapter 9, we're coming here to a new section in chapters 9 and 10. Israel now turns to land productivity. That is, prosperity is what they're trying to produce. In other words, they are trying to increase the value of the dollar, and they are attempting to increase production from the land. And they're nothing in the world but a backsliding heifer, God says. Now, in chapter 9, we have here, prosperity had really blinded them. God had blessed them. And that had blinded them. And now there is coming upon them his judgment of famine. He says, Rejoice not, O Israel, for joy like other peoples. For thou hast played the harlot from thy God. Thou hast loved a reward upon every threshing floor. You're trying to increase your production, and that has become a judgment upon you. We are seeing today that big business... And these great big combines, great corporations today, are not the blessing that we thought at one time they would be. And even farming is in that area. And the important thing is the stock market today. It certainly is more important in the Scriptures to this nation. And that was happening in Israel. And they were being blessed. That is, there was a false prosperity in the land. And by the way, they're having that same prosperity over there today. But they're far from God even today. I believe that one of the methods that God had of judging us, you remember after World War II, I predicted that we were going to suffer as the other nations had. We had totally escaped. We did not have any bombing as England had, or certainly not as Germany had and France had. And as Japan had, we had totally escaped it all. And I felt, in fact, I preached at that time, I felt God would judge us. And we became at that time the most prosperous nation in the world, the leading nation in the world. And it looked like a contradiction of the statement I was making. It was called to my attention. And I wondered about it. And it took me, I think, ten years after the war to see what God was doing And I think now you can see it clearly, and it's this. God judged us with prosperity. That's what he did Israel. He said, I provided everything for you. And you're giving credit to your own ingenuity, your own ability, and you're a proud people, and you're not looking to me or giving God credit at all. And my friend, that just happened to be a picture of us after the war. So we have that here as a picture before us. Now. Verse 2, the floor and the wine press shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail in. In other words, there's going to be a scarcity rather than abundance. And then we have something else here. God makes it clear they are going to get out of the land. He says in verse 3, they shall not dwell in the Lord's land. God says, I'm putting you out of my land. Although God said he'd not forget his covenant with Abraham and with Moses, and with David. But their tenure in the land always depended on their obedience to God. And now he's going to put them out of the land. And then he said that they shall not dwell in the Lord's land, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean things in Assyria. In other words, they've been turning from God, breaking the law, 
Now, God says, I'm really going to give you a diet of unclean things. And so they're not going to have any more fun. They were sinning more, but enjoying it less. And I'm of the opinion that that's true today with a great many people. A man that talked to me when I was in a meeting, I don't want to even identify the place, it's back east, however. He came to me and he said, the reason I came tonight, Dr. McGee, he said, I've tried everything in this world. And he said, I am so sick of sin, just sick of it, you see. Sinning more, enjoying it less. And that's what brought that man to Christ, by the way. Just that very thing like that. Now, God says, They shall not offer wine offerings to the Lord, neither shall they be pleasing unto him. Their sacrifices shall be unto them like the bread of mourner. All that eat of it shall be polluted, for their bread for their souls shall not come into the house of the Lord. You see, God judging them in this particular area here. Verse 5, What will ye do in the solemn day? For in the day of the feast of the Lord, for lo, they're gone because of destruction. Egypt shall gather them up. Memphis shall bury them. The pleasant places for their silver. Nettles shall possess them. Thorns shall be in their tabernacles. And many of them went down to the land of Egypt, actually after the captivity. But again, out of the land they could not worship God as God intended them to. Now, let me read verse 7 here in your hearing. The days of judgment are come. The days of recompense are come. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The spiritual man is mad for the multitude of thine iniquity and the great hatred. Now, what has happened here, the nation had actually lost its way spiritually. Why? Because of the leadership. Now, may I make a statement? I can remember that when I started out studying for the ministry, the big fight in this country and the church was between what was known as fundamentalism and modernism. And modernism espoused the social gospel. They were the do-gooders, and they claimed they had a high ethical standard. And I was inclined, frankly, to agree with them on their high ethical standard because I found out a great many of the fundamentalists just don't operate on high ethics, and that is still true today. And I felt like maybe the liberal had one strike on us in that connection, and it disturbed me a great deal. But I began again to watch liberalism. And I didn't say this. Hosea said it. You can blame it on him. He says, the prophet is a fool. Did they have really a high ethical standard? Well, follow them through. And I'm going to refer back now to the Watergate case. A young man who had gone to Yale, I guess it was, and he had an outstanding liberal preacher there. His father was an outstanding liberal. And he taught them ethics. Now, listen to this. This man also taught young men to burn their draft cards. That's against the law. He also taught certain protest meetings and even to the burning, and that there was a higher law than the law of the land, and he espoused that. 
Well, it led a young man into very serious trouble. That was in his class. He said, well, if that's ethics, then I can follow them. And I just merely use that as an illustration. I'm saying that's true all the way across this land. Liberalism has even lost its moral standard today. And I was in Portland when they discovered there a police woman testified that the place where they were getting dope was that run by the liberal churches. And across this land today, liberalism, I didn't say it. Hosea said the prophet's a fool. He's led the nation astray. And liberalism is responsible for the policy that we followed after World War II. And the trouble that we're in today is the trouble that's been produced by liberalism. I'll guarantee you this. Fundamentalism may act fanatic at times. But the fact of the matter is, fundamentalism did not lead to the trouble that we're in today. And then, even before I began studying for the ministry... I was in college and had not yet gone to seminary. I listened to certain men like Dr. Ironside, Dr. Harry Rimmer, Dr. Arthur Brown, and I heard my professors and liberal preachers call them fanatics. Do you know the things that they preached about and said then are as true today as they possibly can be? And the things I was taught in school, that doesn't happen to be true today. It just didn't work out that way. They had turned their back on God, and the judgment was coming because of that. And they had no spiritual discernment today. And the thing that disturbs me about our nation, we're receiving letters now from many people, and we rejoice in it. They're coming out of cults and isms. Well, how did they get trapped in all of these things today? Only one explanation, that's ignorance of the Word of God, lack of spiritual discernment. Now, God says... He intends to judge them for that. And this is the pattern. This is an illustration for any nation that's made a pretense of being a Christian nation. Now he says, The watchman of Ephraim was with my God, but the prophet is a snare of a fowler in all the ways, and hatred in the house of his God. The watchman, evidently, there were a few fanatical fundamentalists around in that day, warning the people. And yet he says that the prophet is the snare of a fowler. And that's harsh language. I would never use that kind of language to speak of the liberal today, and yet I believe that liberalism is in control of the news media. You couldn't get a fundamental message on the television today or on the radio. Liberalism just won't have it. They turn it down. And yet they have a sacred cow known as the freedom of the press, freedom of speech. Well, fundamentalists have very little freedom today, I can assure you that. But I do want to say that liberalism, whether it's in politics, whether it's in the news media, or whether it's in the pulpit, is a snare. It's like a trap that is set, and it brainwashes people today. And as a result, friends... We've been in trouble ever since World War II. In fact, before World War II, this nation began to move into trouble. And we've had nothing but trouble ever since. And it's time somebody is making a diagnosis and give a prognosis of the case. The problem is we've turned from God as a nation as a whole. That is the condition today. 
And God has become a big swear word in Washington, probably used more than any other, but only used in the form of blasphemy, never in the form of prayer or of worship of him. Now, let's move along here in this. He says, verse 9, "...they have deeply corrupted themselves, as in the days of Gibeah. Therefore he will remember their iniquity. He will judge their sins." Now, there's no ifs, ands, buts about it. God intends to judge sin. Now, maybe you don't like it, but that's exactly what he says, that he intends to judge sin. Now, he says here in verse 10, and let me begin reading at verse 10. He says, something else is going to happen to you. He says, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first ripe in the fig tree. Now, the vine and the fig tree are symbols of the nation Israel. And that's well established all the way through the Word of God. And Hosea just comes right out and says it. I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first ripe in the fig tree, her first time. But they went to Baal Peor and separated themselves under that shame and their abominations were according as they loved. Now, they not only established calf worship in both Samaria and Bethel, but they also brought in the prophets of Baal under Ahab and Jezebel. Now, will you notice, God makes it very clear, verse 11, "...as for Ephraim, their glory shall fly away like a bird." It's like a bird that takes off. You've ever been duck hunting, and you spend the cold hours of the morning in a duck trap or in a boat out on a lake. And then right before the sun comes up and you could start shooting, some monkey that's out there hunting, he fires a gun, and every duck on the lake or nearby takes off, and you watch them fly away. Well, that was the glory of Ephraim. It was departing. This nation had made a tremendous impact upon the ancient world. But that glory was flying away like a bird from the birth and from the womb and from the conception. Though they bring up their children, yet will I bereave them that there shall not be a man left. Yea, woe also to them when I depart from them. God says, I intend to judge them. And one of the judgments was this. You see, the thing promised Abraham was, not only to give him a land, but I'm going to multiply your seed. They'll be like the sand on the seashore, and then God says they'll be like the stars in heaven later on. And God made that good. But now they've sinned. God says you're going to have really a decline in your birth rate. And that'll be part of my judgment upon you. And you won't have to resort to that which is actually murder. You will not have to resort to abortion. That is, when it's done just to escape or make sin possible, and as it's used today. Now, God says in verse 13 here, Ephraim, as I saw Tyre, is planted as a pleasant place, but Ephraim shall bring forth his children to the murderer. Now, God at this time had not judged Tyre. Tyre was a great commercial center, and the northern kingdom, it had caught on. It was like a fever. And they became a commercial center also. And they were going in for that. There was a false prosperity, by the way. 
and that was deceiving them. Now God says, verse 14, "...give them, O Lord, what wilt thou give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts." The women will be barren. And they went through that period at the time. The judgment of God upon them. Verse 15, "...all their wickedness is in Gilgal, for there I hated them for the wickedness of their doings. I will drive them out of mine house. I will love them no more. All their princes are revolters." Now, God says, "...their sin in Gilgal brought my judgment down upon them." It should be a warning to you, though I love them. Now, He says, "...I'll judge you again." And you'll come to the conclusion, I don't love you anymore either. Verse 16, Ephraim is smitten, their root is dried up, they shall bear no fruit. Yea, though they bring forth, yet will I slay even the beloved fruit of their womb. Not only the fruit from the ground, but the birth of children. Verse 17, My God will cast them away, because they did not hearken unto him, and they shall be wanderers among the nations. Now, someone has said the thing that has characterized the Jew has been the wandering Jew and Shylock in Shakespeare. Now, I disagree totally with both of them. But the thing is, God says they're going to be wanderers among the nation. He'd cast them out. Now, the ten tribes as such did not return. They came back with Judah, it's true. And there was that mixture, and they spread throughout the land. You find them around Galilee. In fact, that's where Mary and Joseph lived. And they were actually members of the tribe of Judah. But they're way up there. So there was a tremendous scattering in the land, even when they returned at the Babylonian captivity. And the ten tribes came with them. After all, when Babylon destroyed Assyria, they took the ten tribes with them. And they were amalgamated, intermixed with the others, and they came back to the land so that today the average Jew could not tell you what tribe he belongs to. Yet God says he'll know it someday. Now, chapter 10, verse 1. We come to a very interesting chapter again. And this is still in the section, actually, where God says that judgment is coming upon them. But I think you find out something a little different in this particular section here. God makes it clear, as he said back in the 8th chapter, I'll love them no more. But that was during this particular period. That was not permanent at all. And now as we come to chapter 10, we find another thing they were doing that brought down judgment upon them. Now, this first verse here has been greatly misunderstood. Israel is an empty vine. He bringeth forth fruit unto himself. According to the multitude of his fruit, he hath increased the altars. According to the goodness of his land, they have made handsome images. Now, what he's saying here is not that Israel was a vine not producing fruit. They were very prosperous at this time, you see. God was still being good to them, warning them, though, of a coming judgment upon them. And he says here, Israel is an empty vine. He bringeth forth fruit. Now, what does it mean? Well, he's a vine that empties itself of its fruit. It is just pouring out fruit upon the people. And it's been suggested that Israel is a very fruitful vine. Now, this reminds you of something. 
Later on, the Lord Jesus said to his own, and they were Jewish disciples and apostles in the upper room, he said to them, I am the genuine vine. In other words, up to this point, you have felt like your identification with the nation gave you access to God and a relationship to him. That's no longer true. From here on, I'm going to do something different. I'm calling out a people to my name. I'll be the head, and this church that I'm forming will be the body, and I am the vine, and you're going to be the branches, and the branches will bring forth fruit. And that's the purpose of using this figure that he used here. Therefore, what God is saying to them here, I'm going to judge you for the fact that I have made you prosperous. You've not given me any credit for it at all. It just means that you have grown in your urban areas. You're putting up apartments there and condominiums, and people are moving in. And as a result, why, you think everything is all right. Well, I'm going to judge you with a tremendous lowering of the population. There'll be no population explosion among you. And not only that, as you increase in number, why, you've made more images. In other words, you've increased in your sin. That is the thing that he's saying here. Now, I believe that God blinded us as a nation with prosperity and with power at the end of World War II. While other nations suffered, why, we were the big nation. We became the big brother to the world. We were to be the example. And what an example we have been. We have been good at sending bombs, but we have not sent what we should have sent, Bibles. I get so tired of these protesters today decrying the fact that we bomb these people. May I say to you, I've never heard one of them say anything about what we should have sent to them. It's the Bible that made this a great nation, and we are getting away from it, ignorant of it today, and God's going to judge us. I mean, that's not a pessimistic conclusion. That's a logical, rational conclusion, judging from the past. And there's many a great nation in rubble and ruin and in the dust of the earth. And that is the judgment of God upon them. Now, here he says in verse 2 of chapter 10, Their heart is divided. Now shall they be found faulty. He shall break down their altars. He shall spoil their images. Now their heart was divided. Actually, they worship God. Don't say that they didn't. And down at Jerusalem, many of these people were going down there on the feast days as they'd done in former years, and they were worshiping God. They were great at it. Then they'd come right up and they'd worship at the golden calves, and they worship Baal, and their hearts divided. They go one way today and the next way the next day. And that is the condition friends, that James mentioned. A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. And I believe that that is the reason that we're finding so much inconsistency in the public lives of public men today. They talk on one side of their mouth and say one thing, and on the other side of their mouths, they say something else. I'm told that the conversation in Washington, among those that are in government today, is the foulest speech that you've ever listened to. 
and some of the leaders today, when they get on TV, why, they quote Bible verses. They look like their halo was just polished. And you think if you look around under their coat, they may have wings sprouting. May I say to you, their heart is divided. And that's true of the church. You can't go into the church on Sunday and say, praise God from whom all blessing flow, and then walk out during the week and take his name in vain and cause him to damn everything that's inside. My friend, that kind of living is the kind of living that brought judgment upon these people. Now, verse 3, "...for now they shall say, We have no king, because we feared not the Lord." What then should a king do to us? In other words, go down and look at the southern kingdom. Their king's not helping them very much, and he happens to be in the Davidic line. You feel like because of the fact that you've had godless kings and they never had a good one in the northern kingdom, that that's your problem. And again, it's very easy for me to sit here and blame Washington. But where is the problem today? It's in the hearts of men and women and in your heart and my heart today. Now, will you notice this? Verse 4, he has something else to say here. And this is a good one. They have spoken words. They were very loquacious, great talkers. And today, radio and television and the printed page has made man the most talkative animal that there's ever been. There's no monkey in a tree that chatters more than man does today. Talk, 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 talk. And reams and reams of things that are written today. And friends, 99 and 44, 100 percent of it is absolutely junk. It's not even worth listening to. It'd be better if it hadn't been said. And yet there are people being paid today a fortune for saying words, words, words. They've spoken words. And in all of the things that are being said today, nothing is being said about bringing people back to God, returning to God, turning to the Word of God, looking to Christ as our Savior. They have spoken words, swearing falsely and making a covenant. They just talk, 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 and you can't believe a thing that they say. I get rather amused today that a great many Christians say, Oh, it's terrible that they don't have people put their hands on the Bible and take an oath. They just say that they will swear that they'll tell the truth. Well, I'm glad they've left the Bible out because they've certainly blasphemed that book. And it doesn't mean anything to them. Why in the world should they use the Bible? I resent it myself when they used to put a hand on the Bible, swear to tell the truth and nothing but the truth, and then get up and lie like, well... Lie like liars lie, by the way. They've spoken words, swearing falsely and making a covenant. And how many people have promised God? How many of you have been down to altars? And you've got down and you've dedicated your life and rededicated your life. And did it help you any? Why don't you mean business with God today, my friend? Thus judgment springeth up like hemlock in the furrows of the field. Just like a ragweed, judgment is coming upon you, just like that. Now, in verse 5, he says, "...the inhabitants of Samaria shall fear because of the calves of Beth-Avon." <laughs> and Beth-Avon is a term of ridicule for Bethel. 
And he, what he's saying here, why well, you're jealous one or the other, who's got the biggest can? Which one has more gold in it than the other? For its people shall mourn over it. We boast of things today. We keep up with the Joneses. They got a Cadillac, so we're going to get a Continental. They bought a house that has three bedrooms and a half a dozen baths. And we're going to get one that's got a dozen baths. We've got to outdo them, you see. This was the thing they were doing. And he says here, and it's priests that rejoiced on it for the glory of it, because it is departed from it. God says, all of this that you boasted in, your religion, God says the day will come when the glory of it will depart, and Ichabod will be written over the portal of the door. Now, will you notice verse 6? It shall be also carried unto Assyria for a present to King Jared. He says, if you really want to know that golden calf that you have in Samaria and the one down yonder in Bethel, they're going to be carried, given as a gift. And it'd be a pretty nice gift for the king. A lot of gold was in it, you see. And Ephraim shall receive shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his own counsel. In other words, their counsel is coming to naught. Verse 7, as for Samaria... Her king is cut off like the foam upon the water. In other words, God says he's going to cut off the king in the northern kingdom. In other words, that line and the line down in the southern kingdom of Judah, they'll be singing, I'm forever blowing bubbles. And that's what he says here, that there'll be nothing in the world. He'll be foam upon the water. That's all. Verse 8, the high places also of Avon. The sin of Israel shall be destroyed. In other words, they were worshiping every kind of an idol. And as we've said before, they were put on a grove upon a high place. The thorn and the thistle shall come up on their altars. And they shall say to the mountains, cover us, till the hills fall on us. The judgment that's coming. That's a judgment, by the way, that'll come during the great tribulation period also. Verse 9, O Israel... Thou hast sinned from the days of Gibeah. There they stood. The battle in Gibeah against the children of iniquity did not overtake them. That's when Joshua, you remember, asked for the sun to stand still. And actually, what he really wanted, he didn't need more sunshine. If you've ever been in that land in summertime, friends, you know you don't need sunshine. What he meant was light. He wanted light to continue the battle. And God blessed him there. And in the very place where God blessed them, God will now judge them. Now, verse 10, It is in my desire that I should chastise them, and the people shall be gathered against them when they shall bind themselves in their two furrows. And Ephraim is like a heifer that is taught and loveth to tread out the grain. You remember how Paul used this? He used it to apply to a preacher that the workman is worthy of his hire. He said, don't mind paying your preacher. If he's a Bible teacher that's studying the Word of God and trying to help you, well, don't mind paying him because you even let the ox that treads out the grain, you let him eat the grain. That was part of the Mosaic law. Now, God says, I'm going to pass over her fair neck. Why? Well, because this heifer has been well fed, well taken care of, but... It's a backsliding heifer, and we'll see that again in just a moment. 
I will make Ephraim to ride, Judah shall plow, and Jacob shall break his clods. Now, you see, they loved to tread out the grain. My, they enjoyed the wonderful, bountiful harvest that they got. But they sure didn't like the idea of going out and plowing the ground and breaking up the clods. But work that I hated more than anything as a boy was to chop cotton. I can't think of anything that I hated more than chopping cotton as a boy. And my dad used to make me go out. I had to work to buy my clothes for the fall school. And I went out and chopped cotton, and I went out and picked the stuff. And I can't think of anything worse than having to chop cotton and pick cotton, friends. And God says, I'm going to put you back doing the thing that you don't like to do. Now, verse 12, sow to yourselves in righteousness and reap in mercy. In other words, this is just saying what Paul said. And Paul didn't say it to the unbelieving world. He said it to believers. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he reap. If you sow to the flesh, you shall of the flesh reap corruption. You sow to the Spirit, you'll reap life everlasting. Now, he says here, sow righteousness and break up your fallow ground, for it's time to seek the Lord till he come and rain righteousness upon you. You'll sow in righteousness, and whatever you sow, you're going to reap. You'll get righteousness. We can't live today, my friend, by the devil's standard and expect to reap a reward from God. And no Christian can expect that either. He says here, verse 13, you plowed in wickedness, you've reaped iniquity. Again, what you sow, you reap. Ye have eaten the fruit of lies, because thou didst trust in thy way and the multitude of thy mighty men. In other words, you lied... And the mighty men that you trusted, your leaders, they lied to you. You got exactly what is coming to you. You remember them, Daniel? God says, I set over them the basis to rulers. And today, I don't care what party you're talking about or what group you're talking about, may I say that a sinful, godless people cannot elect a man that is an outstanding leader. If you're going to be a liar... That's who you're going to get to rule over you. If you are an adulterer, that's who you're going to get. A thief, that's who you're going to get. My friend, you can't beat God at this. Greeks had a proverb, the dice of the gods are loaded. And you know, God practically says that. God says, don't gamble with me, you're going to lose. If you think that you can be a liar, an adulterer, and a thief, and get by with it, he says, I have news for you. When you roll the dice of life and you think they're going to come up for you a winner, he says, I have news for you. I already know how they're going to come up. I've loaded those dice. And when you sow sin, you're going to reap sin. You can't escape it. And if you can escape it, friends, any of you listening to me today, you made God a liar. The Bible's not true if you can beat it. I don't think you can beat it up to today. Well, no one has. I wish we had Ahab and Jezebel here today and Judas and a few others that have lived in the past. And I'm not sure that right here in America, if we could bring back from the dead some that have died, I'm of the opinion they'd tell you the same thing. Now, verse 14, Therefore shall a tumult rise among thy people, 
and all thy fortresses shall be spoiled, as Shalman is the word here, but Shalmaneser, spoiled Beth Arbel in the day of battle. Now, that is the place that the Greeks call Arbella. It's in the northern part of the kingdom. And I'm sure that this past year, when we were over there, I heard the guide use the name Arbella and calling attention to some place. But since my mind wasn't on it at the time, frankly, it made no impression upon me at all. But that is the place, and it's in the northern part of the kingdom. In the day of battle, the mother was dashed in pieces upon her children. Now, that is a method, by the way, that was used by not only the Assyrians, the Babylonians used it later on. You'll recall that that was the prayer that those people prayed. The thing that happened to us, when our infants were taken and their heads dashed against the stone, may that be the thing that will come to pass for Babylon. That was an awful, brutal, uncivilized method that was used, by the way. But what do we mean by uncivilized? The awful crimes that have taken place in this country in just the past few years in this drug culture, this new morality, this homosexual approval today. May I say to you, it's not any different than what these pagan heathen did by taking a little baby, dashing its head against a stone. I had a man tell me in Atlanta, Georgia, he said, Dr. McGee, the day I sent my boy to college, I wish I had taken him to the cemetery and buried him. <laughs> in other words, been better if he'd, as an infant, his little brains had been knocked out by some pagan heathen of the past. But the pagan heathens of the present today are even approved. May I say to you, friends, we are a long ways down the road that other nations have gone. Now he says here, So shall Bethel do unto you because of your great wickedness. In a morning shall the king of Israel utterly be cut off. That was the Assyrian came, and overnight they were being transported into slavery into Syria. Now we come to chapter 11 here. And as we come to chapter 11, again, Israel turns from God, must be judged, but God will not give her up. And you know why? Because God loves them. And the emphasis up to this point has been on the disobedience of God's people. But now there is a new note that is sounded here. And you know what that new note is? It's the love of God. Now, how wonderful it is. Now, we begin with a very strange verse, and we'll get through this verse today. Verse 1 of chapter 11. When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. Now, this speaks primarily of the nation Israel. There's no question about that. And it speaks of the fact of a close relationship. It goes back to the time that God says here, Israel as a nation was my son. And I took them out of Egypt. I didn't take them out of Egypt because they were wonderful people and that they were serving me. They were not. They were in idolatry then. I took them out of Egypt because I loved them. And friends, that's the reason he saved you and me. It's not the basis of salvation, but it's the motive of salvation back of the redemption we have in Christ, 
the fact that he dies because God so loved the world. When Israel was a child, and I loved him. God says, I took them out of Egypt because I loved them, not because they were worthy, not because they performed good works. I love them. That was the basis. Now, he says something here, and Matthew said this applies to the Lord Jesus. And somebody says, who's right? Hosea or Matthew? Both of them are right. This is an application of it. It means that this boy that was born young in Bethlehem, he's identified with these people. He's an Israelite. Ask that woman of Samaria when he came up out of the well. She says, how is it that thou being a Jew askest drink me a woman of Samaria? Well, may I say to you, friends, it means that God's sent him down to this world to die. And down there in the safety of Egypt, for that's where he'd been taken as a baby, Now God says, take him back to that land, a land where he's to die, for that's what he came from. Move him back into danger. Take him back up yonder to Nazareth, and he'll be brought up in Nazareth, and he's going to die on a cross, and he's identified with his people, and he's identified with humanity, with you and me today. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. What a wonderful verse this is. Now, verse 2, as they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed unto Balaam and burned incense to carved images. But these people, they got in the land, and God had put the pagans out, the Canaanites out, the others out, because they worshiped Balaam. But these people now turned to Balaam and to carved images. Verse 3, I taught Ephraim also to go taking them by their arms, but they knew not that I healed them. In other words, God would bless them in many different ways, thinking that would be a gentle way of leading them. Then he makes this remarkable statement, I drew them with cords of a man, with bands of love, and I was to them as they that take off the yoke on their jaws and I laid food before them. Now, God says, I did not force them to serve me. And God won't force himself upon you today either, my friend. A great many people say, why doesn't God break through today? And why doesn't God do this? Well, I don't know why God doesn't do a lot of things. He just hadn't told me, but he's God, and I happen to be a little creature down here, and I lack a great deal of information, and I'm not able to answer But I do know this, that God won't force you. The only band he'll put on you is love. That's the only one. And he says, I don't even put a yoke on you. I won't put a bridle on you. I won't push you. I won't force you. The only appeal that I make to you is I love you. And my friend, that's the appeal that he makes to you and to me today. God's not going to force you. God's not going to push you. He moved heaven and hell to get to the door of your heart. And he stopped there and politely knocked on the door and said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. That's where he is. He's never crashed the door. He's not going to push himself in. You will have to respond to love. But the interesting thing is that's been the strongest appeal. You remember the story that's told about Napoleon. He made the statement one time. He said, Charlemagne and Alexander the Great and other great generals, they have built up empires. 
and they built them on force. But Jesus Christ today has millions of people that die for him, and he built an empire on love. That's his only appeal to you, friend. That's his only appeal to you today. Don't think he'll use any other method. He'll judge you, but he won't draw you to himself except by love. But that's the strongest appeal that can possibly be made. The band is a band of love. God won't force you into anything. And then he says, "...he shall not return into the land of Egypt, but the Assyrians shall be his king, because they refuse to return." Now, Israel was running down to Egypt to get help. And then he found out Egypt was his enemy. Then he ran up to Assyria to get help there. And God says, I'm going to make the Assyrian his king. And that's where he sent them into captivity. And the sword shall abide on his cities and shall consume his branches and devour them because of their own counsels. And my people are bent to backsliding. Now, here's the second time the word backsliding occurs. Though they call him to the Most High, none at all would exalt him. Now, again, we said that it's the figure of the heifer, the backsliding heifer. When I was a boy, we tried to push him up that runway into the old wagon, and the little calf would stiffen his front feet, and you'd get him up about halfway, then he'd slip all the way back, and you'd have to start all over again. And that's what backsliding is. It's just to refuse to listen to God, refuse to come to God. Now, verse 8, listen to this. This is a plaintiff note. It looks as if God here is on the horns of a dilemma, as if he's frustrated. Listen to him. How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? God doesn't want to give them up. God loves them. But because of their sin... God must judge them. He says, how shall I deliver the Israel? And friends, God has no other way to save you except by the death of Christ. Now, you may have two or three different ways yourself, but God doesn't have but one way. And since he says in this book, I'm the only Savior, you better listen to him, because you and I are not in the saving business. He is. He says, how shall I make thee as Adma? How shall I set thee as Zeboim? Now, those were cities down in the plain that God judged with Sodom and Gomorrah. God says, I hate to judge you like that. But friends, it's just as desolate in Samaria today as it is along the Dead Sea. God had to judge them because he says, Mine heart is turned within me and my compassions are kindled together. I will not execute the fierceness of mine anger. In other words... They didn't get half what was coming to them. Why? Because God says, I will not return to destroy Ephraim. And God intends to redeem them and put these people back in that land someday. Now, their present return is not the fulfillment of that at all. Don't blame God for what's happening over there today. But God will do it. And why will he do it? Well, for one reason, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in the midst of thee, and I'll not enter into the city. Now, there's something else we need to learn today. We feel like that since we live in a democracy and we're being told today, I don't think it's very meaningful, that we are the people and that our government exists for us and they do what we want them to do. And our decision is the one. God says, I'd like for you to know something. I'm the sovereign God. I'm not accountable to anyone. I do not have a board of directors and nobody elected me to office, and I do what I please. 
And I want to say this with a great deal of force to you today, friends. If you don't like what God's doing today, it's too bad for you because God's going to do it. He's not accountable to you. Somebody says, oh, why does God do this? I don't know. There are a lot of things God does I don't understand. But he's God, and he's sure not accountable to Vernon McGee. He doesn't come down and hand in a report to me. Hear it through the Bible. They give me reports. But God doesn't give me a report. Why? Because he's God. He doesn't have to report to me. Listen to him now. They shall walk after the Lord. He shall roar like a lion. When he shall roar, then the children shall tremble from the west. God intends to judge, my friend, the judgment of the nations of the west. We happen to be in the West from Israel. They shall tremble like a bird out of Egypt and like a dove out of the land of Assyria. And I will place them in their houses, saith the Lord. Ephraim encompasseth me about with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah yet ruleth with God and is faithful with the saints. They still had a few good kings in the southern kingdom, but none in the northern kingdom. They made a profession. And they were using lies and deceit. Friends, you can fool everybody today. Abraham Lincoln made the statement, everybody believes it because good old Abe said it, that you can fool some of the people all the time, all the people some of the time, but you can't fool all the people all the time. He didn't live in the day of TV and brainwashing. You can fool all the people today all the time, by the way. We've never lived in such a day of brainwashing. But you want to know something? Nobody's fooling God today. He knows, and he'll judge someday according to truth. Now he says here in chapter 12, Ephraim feedeth on wind and falleth after the east wind. Now that refers to an east wind that comes out over that burning Arabian desert and blows through that land, friends, and you think that you've already landed in the wrong place when you're there, when that wind begins to blow. And God says, I intend to let the Assyrians come through that land like that. And then he goes on to say, chapter 12, now verse 2, the Lord hath also a controversy with Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways, according to his doings, will he recompense him. Now he took his brother by the heel in the womb and by his strength he had power with God. That has been something that has always been questioned, of why God put it in his word that Jacob took hold of his brother Esau's heel. Isn't it interesting today that medicine and psychology have said that probably the most important period of a man's life is when he's in the womb, and that even their character is being formed as well as a human body? And This little fellow began to reveal something that was there. He wanted to be the firstborn. Esau beat him out, and he was the firstborn. This boy wanted to be the firstborn. I don't know how to explain it other than that, my friend, that it was in his heart from the very beginning. And he wrestled at his birth. But God had to wrestle with him later on at Peniel in order that he might lay hold to this man and get him and be able to bless him. Yet he had power over the angel and prevailed. How did he? Was he a better wrestler? Would he appear on TV today as an outstanding wrestler? No, Jacob wasn't much of a wrestler. He had his ears pinned back and his shoulders pinned to the mat. 
God had him down, but he won. You know how he won? By surrendering. And you can fight God all you want to, but you'll never win until you surrender to him. Even the Lord God of hosts, the Lord, is his memorial. I haven't time to go in that, but that's a marvelous statement, by the way, that we have there. Therefore, turn thou to thy God, keep mercy and justice, and wait on thy God continually. You see, the name Jehovah, the Lord, is a name God gave to them as a memorial. He says, you'll always know me by my name. I'm Jehovah, the self-existing one, the living God. Doesn't need an image or an altar. Doesn't even need man at all. Now he says here, therefore turn thou to thy God. Keep mercy and justice and wait on thy God continually. In other words, these people needed to practice what they preach. The interesting thing is this worship of Satan today and this giving over to homosexuality today is leading to the basest of crimes. You see, only by coming to the living God can mercy and justice and waiting upon God continually. They go together. He's a merchant. The balances of deceit are in his hand. He loveth to oppress. Dishonest in business. And that is not something that God approves either, by the way. And Ephraim said, Yet I am become rich. I have found substance in all my labors. They shall find no iniquity in me that is sin. In other words, he's able to buy off. He'd made his money dishonestly. And he thought he was being blessed to God. And I that am the Lord thy God from the land of Egypt will yet make thee to dwell in tabernacles as in the days of the solemn feast. God says, I'm not through with you. I'll not give you up. Now let me drop down to verse 14. I'll pick up verse 11 on the way down. Is there iniquity in Gilead? Surely they are vanity. Now, Gilead is the place where there should be a bomb, a Gilead to heal the wound. But Gilead now is a place of sin. And you'll notice now, as I drop down to verse 14, Ephraim provoked him to anger most bitterly. Therefore shall he leave his blood upon him, and his reproach shall his Lord return unto him. Now, as we come to chapter 13, and I'm moving hurriedly now, friends, I would like to finish this today if possible. Now, Israel will be judged in the present. That is this chapter, the next chapter 14, Israel will be saved in the future. God's not through with them, though today they are scattered. Now, verse 1 of chapter 13, "...when Ephraim spoke trembling, he exalted himself in Israel." But when he offended in Baal, he died. In other words, when he served the living God, God exalted him. But when he began the worship of Baal, he died. And my friend, not only did he die and was put out of the land, but the land died. And I don't think that it's come back today. For instance, I felt that Samaria and those cities up through there that are in ruins today are the most desolate that you'll find anywhere on top side of the earth today. Verse 2, And now they sin more and more, and have made them melted and cast images of their silver and idols according to their own understanding, all of it the work of the craftsmen. They say of him, Let the man that sacrificed kiss the calves. And that's a form of worship. They were going up actually and kissing these golden calves. Great many people today think if they kiss an image or 
kiss the ground. And I was in Israel at the garden tomb, and some lady came in there. She was in our tour, by the way. And that's when you could get into where the grave was, actually, where if that was the place Christ was placed, that would be it. And she got down on her hands and knees and started kissing the place. I got her by the arm and told her, I said, you get up. I said, woman, don't you know how many germs there are in this land? And we're told not even to drink the water here. And you're down there in the dirt. Oh, she said, this is a holy place. And it's where my Lord was buried. I said, that doesn't make any difference. He's not here today. He's the living Christ at God's right hand, and you can't kiss him today, but you can worship him and praise him. Cut out all of this nonsense. It's nonsense to go through that kind of worship as if you're worshiping the living and true God. You worship him, my friend, in the life that you live. You worship him in the way you conduct your business and carry on your social life and the way you run your home and the way that you act out on the street, not in the sanctuary. We today have made a distinction between the sanctuary and the street, and there's no difference in God's sight at all. Verse 4, Yet I'm the Lord thy God from the land of Egypt, and thou shalt have no God but me, for there is no Savior beside me. Listen to him, friend. You may work out a plan of salvation, but he is the only Savior, and since he is... You better come his way. The Lord Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. Now, that's either true or it's not true. Millions have been coming that way. They found it true. And you may have your way of salvation, but God is the only Savior. And he's the only one that can give you a plan of salvation. He's the only one that can work it out. Now, God says, I've been your God from the day that I brought you out of Egypt. I'm not about to give you up, but I'm going to judge you. I did know thee in the wilderness, in the land of great drought. Now, verse 7, Therefore I'll be unto them like a lion, like a leopard. By the way will I observe them, I will meet them like a bear. I don't like to spiritualize prophecy, but here is something that's interesting. The lion was the picture of Babylon. The leopard was the picture of Greece, of Alexander the Great. And the bear is the picture of the Medo-Persian Empire. God says, I'm going to come to you like a lion. He scattered them under Babylon and Medo-Persia. They were scattered throughout the world. And the same thing by the bear, if you please. God says, I'm going to judge you, but I'm not through with you. I'm going to restore you. Now he says here in verse 9, O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thine help. Friends, today we even blame God for what happens to us. If you feel like God's to blame, here's a good verse for you. You destroyed yourself. You're responsible for your condition. You get help from God. He will furnish help to you. Now, he goes on in verse 11 saying, I gave thee a king in mine anger, and that was Saul, and I took him away in my wrath. And he took Hosea away from the northern kingdom, the last one. He took Zedekiah in the southern kingdom, and he did it in his wrath. Judgment. Judgment at the beginning, judgment at the end. In other words, he makes it clear, as he says in verse 16 here, Samaria shall become desolate. I've been there. I agree with God. It's a desolate place today.
Now, the last chapter, chapter 14, here's a very wonderful chapter, by the way. Israel will be saved in the future. Listen to him. O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. It's your sin that's caused you to go into captivity. Now, he says in verse 3, Assyria shall not save us. We'll not ride upon horses. Neither will we say any more to the work of our hands. Ye are our gods, for in thee the fatherless findeth mercy. Imagine making something with your hand and falling down and worshiping it. Many men today worship their own ability, worship their brain, their intellect. They worship what they are doing today, what they're able to do. You're nothing in the world but a pagan and heathen when you do that. Now he says here in verse 4, I will heal their backsliding. They've been backsliding, slipping away from me. But God says, I'm going to heal them. I will love them freely, for mine anger is turned away from them. Now, I drop down to verse 8. One of the most wonderful verses, I think, in the Bible. Listen to this. This is a victory song. Ephraim shall say, that's future, What have I to do anymore with idols? I have heard him and observed him. I'm like a green fir tree. From me is thy fruit found. God's finally going to win. Love is going to win. You see, he says to Ephraim, how shall I give you up? He said, oh, Ephraim, let him alone. He's turned to his idols. But there's a day coming when he's going to see that he's made a great blunder and mistake, and he'll turn back to me, and he's going to say, I don't have anything more to do with idols. I can't help but believe in this tragedy of sin, this drama of human life that's being enacted down here in this world today, that God's going to come out of it the victor. I believe that there'll be more people saved than there will be lost. That was the belief of Spurgeon. He'd say that many times. You and I have our nose pressed against the present hour. And you look around at the world today, and it's just that little flock the Lord Jesus talked about. And that's what he's calling out of the world. But in the past, he saved Nineveh, the entire population at one time. hundred years later, they had reverted to sin, and he judged them. And there have been great revival movements of the past. But in the future, the greatest turning to God is to take place. And of all times, it's during the Great Tribulation period, and the millennium is going to be a period of salvation. By the way, that's one of the things that's going to make it the millennium. God's going to win. Love will triumph. Our God is riding victoriously in his own chariot. He's the sovereign God, and God pitied the man that gets under those chariot wheels. I don't know about you. I'm like Philip. Out yonder, I'm hitchhiking a ride with him today. I want to go along with God. That's the reason we invite you to get aboard the Bible bus, because we're going through his word here to find out how to stay in the will of God in this difficult day in which we're living. Until next time, may God richly bless you, my beloved.